Let's turn to Mark's gospel, chapter 3 this evening, as we journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation on Sunday nights, and we find ourselves in Mark chapter 3. If you're with us tonight and you're without a Bible, a uh, Bible will be very helpful always, but uh, certainly in the Sunday evenings where we try to cover a little more territory than usual, and men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and if you flag them, they'll put one in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord to you uh, tonight. We pick things up in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter uh, 3, in verse 22, but let's, let's start in verse 20. And then the multitude came together so that they, that is Jesus and the disciples, could uh, not so much as eat bread. And when his own people, that is Jesus' family, heard about this, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, uh, he has gone out of his mind. Uh, the, Jesus began his public ministry at 30 years of age. His public ministry was not a long one. It was uh, relatively short uh, uh, slightly over three years, about three and a half years. The first year of his public ministry is uh, encapsulated as the year of obscurity, and the second year is the year of popularity, and the third year is the year of opposition. Mark's gospel uh, almost entirely uh, uh, gives no attention at all to the first year of Jesus' public ministry, uh, the year of, of obscurity, and moves right into the year of popularity. And when you think about Jesus' ministry, I mean, we read it on, a, on uh, words on a page, the Spirit bears witness to us in, in our, our own hearts. I mean, it's like a movie that goes on in our mind by the Holy Spirit. We can picture the, the ministry of Jesus. But at this point in time in Jesus' ministry is what Mark has laid out here. The, he has, Jesus has taken the gospel into uh, the north, the south, the east, and the west of uh, all of, uh, of Israel, uh, the news of God's love, the call to repentance, the call to a relationship with God and enter into the kingdom of God. And when we read about him time and again going into entire cities and villages and healing every single person, not only in the village, not only in the city uh, that had disease and had need, but the people were bringing uh, people from miles and miles around in need to, to come for Jesus' uh, healing touch, and the casting out uh, of demons, of people who were demon-possessed. And, and when John finishes his gospel, he says, you know, in essence, he said, you know, if, we, if I wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to be able to uh, contain it. By this time in Jesus' ministry, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people who have not only been impacted by his message and his teaching, uh, but have been impacted by the power of his touch, by his healing, by the deliverance of, uh, of demons. And probably he has delivered and healed thousands of people. Now, remember between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you've got a 400-year period before Jesus comes on the scene, and there is no voice from God during those 400 years. There is no revelation, not to the Jews, not to the Gentile, not anyone. It's absolute silence. And I think the silence was given by God in order to provide a kind of the silence and, and stillness that would uh, allow Jesus to come on the scene in human history and break that silence for a, a world hungry for the power of God, hungry for the message of God, 
And Jesus comes on the scene, and he provides it in a, in a very, very dramatic way. Well, all of this created a tremendous problem for the existing uh, religious, uh, Jewish religious uh, systems of the day, principally the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, and then a group known as the scribes who we're going to uh, see come on the scene immediately. Jesus' popularity is off the graph. Everybody knows about him in Israel. Everybody knows about him in the nations that were surrounding Israel. And somehow they realized that he is a threat to our religious establishment, our religious system, and the money-making operation that they had turned, and the power operation that they had turned Judaism in under their oversight. And if you, if you think the pagans, if you think the world uh, knows how to fight for power and for money, you haven't seen anything until you see religious people whose power and money is threatened, and watch the fight they'll put up. And that's exactly what they have to do now. Jesus is so popular uh, that a group of scribes come all the way from the city of Jerusalem to the north to the area of the Galilee with the intent of blaspheming him, with the intent of so destroying his reputation before the people that he would lose the following that he, that he had, threatened by it. And so we see in verse uh, 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, we're talking about a tremendous distance that they've traveled, and uh, they came to where Jesus was teaching, and this is what they declared to the crowds that were following Jesus. He has Belzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. I, I don't, how dark of a heart. I mean, you, you, you look at the average person in our culture that would even look at Jesus as they would see him in the pages of Scripture, and as Jesus said, you know, find a fault in me, uh, as he said to the Jewish religious leaders, and, uh, and nobody could find a fault in him. But I mean, at least you have a little bit of respect for the out-and-out pagan, and I, and I know a little bit about out-and-out paganism, that looks and says, listen, I don't want anything to do with the Bible. I don't want anything to do with the God of the Bible. I don't want anything to do with Jesus, simply because it's going to crimp my style. I love my sin. I love my self-will. I love what I want to do, and I know that if I give my life to God, everything is going to change, and I haven't had my fill of sin yet. That's an honest sinner. But here you have someone, I mean, the darkness of it, where they have to come on the scene and now uh, not only reject Jesus, but now uh, t take his reputation and draw it through the mud. And what a dark, dark heart, especially the heart of a person, a group of people that claim to represent God. And that's what they did. They claimed to be the, the spokespersons for God among the Jewish people. And this is the accusation they make against Jesus that all of these miracles that you see, all these demons that he's casting out here, he's doing it in the power of the devil. That's how he's doing it. And what an amazing, I mean, hard-hearted uh, accusation that they, they make against him. And so Jesus, he allows them to make the accusation, and then he calls the crowd, the disciples, to himself and, uh, and said to them in parables. He's going to correct what the accusation that's been made against him. And, and the first thing he does is he pokes a hole in the, uh, in the, uh, the logic of the scribes in, in, in the accusation. But the, the accusation is completely illogical. 
And he called them to himself, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? I mean, it's a good question. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if now Satan has risen up against himself and is now divided, he cannot stand but uh, has an end. And so Jesus declares to the group, the accusation's been made, and he asks them to consider any kingdom uh, that expands itself in human history by virtue uh, of uh, fighting against itself, opposing itself, accusing uh, itself. And Jesus basically said concerning Satan, Satan is no fool uh, in, in, in every respect. I mean, he, he, he's smarter than to, uh, to, to do what he, they, they were accusing Jesus of doing, and there's no way that Satan is going to participate in the destruction of his, his own kingdom. Jesus said it's illogical. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 27, he says, no one can enter a, a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Jesus essentially declares that the accusation made against him here uh, is dishonest. Uh, and, and he uses a situation that was common in life. You know, we think that people breaking into houses and stealing what they want from the houses, burglarizing, and that kind of thing is new in human history. Well, we probably don't think that, but we should at least know that it isn't uh, new in history. And when someone is able to break into another person's house and go in and take out of that house whatever they choose to take out of that house, it's an evidence that the person who is able to take from one man's kingdom, from one man's house so freely, it's an evidence that the man who steps in and takes is someone who is far stronger than the one that he is taking from. And what Jesus was saying is when I step into Satan's living room, and here you have men and women all throughout the land of Israel, and I step in and I cast a demon out of those people. I have gone into Satan's home. I've gone into his living room, and I have taken right under his nose what once belonged to him and delivered it from his home and brought it into my home and into my family. And what the evidence of Jesus casting demons out of people was not that he was doing it in the power of the devil, but that someone far greater than the devil had come on the scene in human history and so strong in his power that he could without any effort at all plunder uh, people from Satan and, and uh, deliver them from Satan's hold. You know, Satan didn't care about money. He didn't care about gold. He didn't care about power. He didn't care about any of those things ultimately. He uses those things. But all that Satan cares about, he knows he's doomed. He knows that he is headed for an eternal lake of fire that was not created for mankind, but for the devil and the angels uh, and the, uh, the demons uh, themselves. And Satan understands that. And the only thing that he wants to do between now and the time that he is cast into that judgment is to take every man, woman, and child that he can into that judgment with him. He's that ruthless. He's that hard-hearted. And so when Jesus comes in and delivers a human being from the power of the devil, he is taking from the devil the thing that is most prized by the devil. Not gold, not silver, not homes, not power, not authority, none of those things, but delivering people. And this is a battle that's being waged 
uh, on the, the devil against God for the souls and the destinies of, of human beings. And what the re- Jewish religious leaders ought to have done if they were honest in their assessment of the ministry of Jesus in this regard would have been to just get on their knees and declare, we waited 400 years for something like this to happen in Jewish history and in the history of the world, that someone greater than the devil would come on the scene with this kind of power, and that they would have acknowledged the fact that Jesus was not working in uh, cooperation with the devil, but that he was infinitely greater and superior uh, to the devil. I'll tell you, I like this. I like it very, very much. And uh, I don't know what kind of spiritual warfare you go through in your life as a Christian. I don't know what you experienced of the demonic realm before you became a Christian. But I, for one, am thankful of this passage and other passages like this that testify to the fact that Jesus, in the name of Jesus, even as we have sung, is greater than any power that the devil has, any hold that he can have upon people. And even as we sang tonight, to know that whatever trial or any spiritual attack, as they can come in the night, they can come in the day, and to be able to declare that name of Jesus and to recognize that a completely new power and dynamic has entered the scene by virtue of simply naming uh, the name. I am glad for Jesus' authority over the demonic realm. What a blasphemy to accuse him of being an extension of that demonic realm, and uh, how dishonest can a human heart be in in the assessment of Jesus' life. And Jesus went on in verse 28, and he said, Assuredly, uh, verily, verily, I like it in the old King James, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to uh, eternal condemnation. This is why the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is known as the unforgivable sin on the basis of, uh, of what Jesus says here. And Jesus makes this statement concerning the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the explanation in verse 30, because they had said uh, that He has an unclean uh, spirit. And so Jesus warns against, and He warns the audience that is with Him against following uh, these uh, scribes in their uh, assessment of Jesus and, fa- and warn them against committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And really something to read. I mean, right here in the Scriptures, and sometimes we're familiar with the passage and we understand what it means, but to realize that, hey, there is a sin that a person can commit in human history for which there is absolutely no forgiveness for that sin uh, if that uh, sin is committed. I think some very important to understand what the unpardonable uh, sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not. Excuse me. I would say it is the portion of probably any pastor and maybe uh, any Christian who ministers the Word over a long period of time, but I would say in the course of, of my years of pastoring that probably a half dozen times I've had people come up to me uh, convinced that they had blasphemed uh, the Holy Spirit. And how, uh, you know, here they are uh, beginning to seek God, (coughs) excuse me, again, perhaps even born again. 
and here they're reading through the Scriptures, and they read about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The word blasphemy means injurious speech. It is to speak, it is to speak something that is intended to injure. And what happens so often in a person's mind is they become a Christian now, they come across a passage like this, and they remember a time in their life, maybe as a youth or as a child or even as an adult, where they, you know, uh, raise their fist up to God and say, I, I hate you, I want nothing to do with you, I don't believe in you, I don't, you know, it's, <laughs> it's silly to cry out to someone you don't believe in, but people do it. Uh, and this, all the things that can be said in, in even cursing God. And then they come across this and they're convinced that, I have, uh, that they have committed the blasphemy uh, of the Holy Spirit. But if you've cursed God in your life and you've said terrible things about Him when you were younger, used His name in vain, all of that can be forgiven today. All of that can be forgiven in an instant. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't uh, when, you know, you've, uh, that you've rejected the gospel or, and God's plan of salvation uh, for your life. And the reason that that's not the unforgivable sin is because all of that can change today. Uh, any one of us, if we're not a Christian yet, can turn to God and receive uh, God into our lives and begin a relationship uh, with Him and by, by trusting in His Son. Sometimes people think about the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that it's backsliding. Uh, you know, I knew better. I was raised in a Christian home, and I backslid. And if you knew what I saw, and if you ever knew what I did, and what I said, and, and what was a part of my life in my backsliding, I mean, that it, 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 you would know that there's no power here for me uh, to be saved. But the thing about backsliding is that that can be repented of uh, in, a, in an instant. Uh, can, in a moment, even tonight, and we can return to God and be restored uh, by God. Occasionally, uh, again, the, I will meet that person that, uh, that, and most often when they're concerned about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is something that they said in anger against God uh, in, in their youth and in, in their uh, childhood, perhaps. But that, that doesn't apply, that isn't blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and it never applies to the kind of person that ever comes up to me or you as a Christian and is concerned that they've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. No one who, who has ultimately com committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has any concern at all that they've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because it is only the work of the Holy Spirit within our life that would make us even concerned that we had committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would make us concerned at all for uh, uh, what God would think of us or, or a desire to be saved. And, and, and so to be, even be concerned, as I think I always reassure people with, even to be concerned that you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit indicates that you haven't been, that you haven't committed it because it's the Holy Spirit uh, that's, that's giving you that concern and is trying to draw you uh, to, uh, to, to Christ. And... and uh, and you wouldn't be drawn to Jesus without, uh, apart from the Holy Spirit. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? The Bible teaches that there is only one sin that's unforgivable. And the only sin is we would rightly divide this and compare Scripture with Scripture and rightly divide the Word of God. There is only one sin that is unforgivable in a person's life, and that is a lifelong rejection of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And if a person spends the entirety of their life 
rejecting the salvation that God has provided in His Son, and then we head into eternity, into a, a Christless eternity, having rejected His Son, there is no opportunity past this life to rectify that, uh, to fix that sin. That sin is fixed on me now for the rest of my eternity. There is no forgiveness for dying in a Christless uh, condition, and that's the only sin that is, is unforgivable, it, the reject the salvation that's found in, in Jesus. As Jesus said famously, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And to trust in Him and to, for the forgiveness of my sins means that I will never, ever perish. And con- Conversely, to reject Him as my Savior uh, will be to perish. And if a person dies in that Christ-rejecting condition, then it puts them beyond the possibility uh, of salvation. And so, very simply, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as best as I can understand it, is the lifelong rejection to the Holy Spirit's testimony and witness and attempt to point us to putting our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. I want you to notice something very important about Jesus as He talks to these men about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Notice that Jesus does not say to these men that they had committed it yet. If they had already committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it would be, why would He speak to them about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? They've already committed the unpardonable sin, and what good would it do uh, to address it? He does not say that they have already committed the blasphemy with the Holy Spirit. He's only saying, in the light of what they accuse Him of, that they are in grave danger uh, of committing it. And, and, uh, and, and on the verge of it. In other words, in terms of what they've done here, when a person is so unwilling to accept the truth about Jesus Christ and to receive His truth as well, that, uh, that they are willing then to ascribe the miracles of Jesus, to ascribe the works of Jesus to the devil. Now you're dealing with a person whose heart is so hard and determined to reject Jesus, uh, no matter what the evidence that they are then in grave danger of now spending the rest of their life uh, rejecting Him and then dying in that condition. And their assessment of Jesus, I mean, so obviously illogical, so obviously dishonest. Their desire for self-deception concerning Jesus, so strong here. Uh, that they're well on their way, as Jesus points out, to committing the unforgivable uh, sin. And, uh, and the good news, though, for any of us in this room here uh, tonight, that no one in this room has uh, committed the unpardonable sin, because every one of us is still alive. <laughs> I haven't seen anybody slump in the course of our service here. Each of us are alive, and as long as we are alive. We have not committed that sin yet, and we have an opportunity to put our faith uh, in in Christ and to be received uh, by Him. Then Jesus, uh, uh, Mark's account goes on in verse 31, and then His brothers and His mother came to Him as He's ministering, 
and there's such a great multitude that is around him wherever he is at this point in time. Uh, they couldn't get inside of the room to speak to him, and so they, they were standing outside, and they sent a message into him uh, calling him. And this multitude was sitting around Jesus, and he's evidently teaching. And they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, uh, saying, who is my mother or my brother? And he looked around in a circle to the, at those who sat around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my uh, mother. Uh, the passage really helps clear up a, a couple of uh, mistaken ideas about Mary that circulate uh, in, uh, in professing Christianity, and one of them is that, G that Mary was a perpetual virgin, but she wasn't. Uh, here she comes to meet with Jesus, concerned for His health uh, under the demands of His ministry and comes with Jesus' brothers. His younger brothers come as well. She wasn't a perpetual uh, virgin. There's also, within Roman Catholicism, uh, and they're probably uh, famous for it, uh, you have uh, the prayers being lifted up to Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, and so I did my Hail Marys as a boy, trust me one right after the other, like grease lightning, and uh, praying to, to Mary as a, as a part of Roman Catholicism. I was a part of my mother's search when I was a boy, and, uh, and uh, thankfully we weren't there uh, very long. But, um, uh, but this, uh, this whole idea related to Mary is that who better to get through to a son than a son's mother? And that's the logic. So if you don't think that you can get through to God the Father, if you don't think you can get through with your uh, desire or your plan or your request to, uh, to Jesus, then the best way is to pray to the mother and let her go to, to Jesus and try and convince Him uh, to do as, as you have requested in prayer. And so the directing of prayers uh, to Mary. And, uh, but the alarming thing here <laughs> is that clearly… Uh, Jesus doesn't… Uh, if that whole MO worked, Jesus would say to everyone that was in the meeting, uh, hold your thought right there. Uh, my mother is talking to me, and whenever my mother talks to me, I drop everything and do whatever it is that she's saying. And not only does He not do that, but He even says, who is my mother and my brother? Well, you're not going to talk to the co-redemptress that way if she really is the co-redemptress, but she's not. And so, I, I, I look forward to the day. Pastor Paul taught uh, a couple of uh, Sundays ago, taught on Joseph in the morning. Wasn't that tremendous? And then on Mary in the evening. I so look forward to seeing Mary one day. I marvel at her commitment to the Lord. I marvel at the hardship of what she was called into in what God called her to do and her faithfulness to it. Blessed art thou among women. She really is. I mean, no disrespect toward her at all. But it doesn't do us any good to have a, a wrong idea, very misdirected ideas uh, about Mary or any aspect of Christianity in this way. I'm, I'm growing older. 
uh, I'm not planning on kicking the bucket anytime soon. God will take care of that, so don't be concerned for me. He's talking about getting older a little bit these days. What does he know that we don't know? Um, none of us knows <laughs> about any of that. But the more zealous I become in my old age for Christianity uh, to be uh, simply what it is described to be in Scripture, and not encumbered by anything else, whether it comes from Roman Catholicism or it comes from Protestantism or it comes from some cult that identifies itself as Christian. And there is no need, as Jesus answers here, there is no need for any of us to go through any other mediator than to, than to Jesus directly. And, and the setting up of these layers or setting up the church as a layer between people and God, it's an awful mistake, and it does terrible damage. And Jesus looks and He says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And Jesus is saying that the, the person who becomes one of His disciples uh, by trusting in Him enters into a relationship with Him that is deeper than even uh, the ties of, of the deepest family ties or earthly ties. And so, what do we, if we want to move Jesus, if we want our prayers to be powerful, uh, how does that happen? Jesus tells us by being in relationship with Him and then by being obedient uh, to His Word. There's no need uh, for uh, any, in, any other layers, uh, and nothing else can give us a greater confidence in prayer uh, than for those things to characterize our lives. In chapter 4, and again he began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him. Everywhere he goes, it's a crowd. And so he got into a boat, and he sat on it on the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. We just got back, a group did from Israel, just shy of 90 people, and we were down at the Sea of Galilee multiple times, and, uh, but one time in particular, and, uh, and, and so the picture can come up in our minds, uh, and, and any of us, in terms of any lake that you've been to. But Jesus has got a multitude around Him, and the multitude is, if He's surrounded in all directions, how can He teach His Word uh, to people? He might be able to shout, and it would go eight people deep into the crowd, and then it would be lost, and everybody would be saying, what is He saying? What is He saying? And, uh, and so what He does is He gets in a boat, casts off from the shore. It gives Him a little bit of distance between the crowd that's in front of Him, and now He can speak where a large group can can hear him. It's an interesting thing when you go to Israel and you go down to the Sea of Galilee, uh, how well sound carries. I mean, you, there are no, virtually no private conversations on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Something about the water and, and, uh, and the air and everything there. Uh, there can be a boat that's out on, uh, out on the water where there's a group of Christians that are on it and is a part of their tour and all, and somebody can be speaking and you can hear every word that they're saying, though they're in the distance. And so sound carries so well, and that's why they could, they could hear him. And so he, he gets into this place, he gets himself situated because what he has to say is so important to him uh, to deliver to the crowd. And then he taught them, by many, uh, taught them many things by, the, by parables, 
and he said to them in his teaching, he said, listen. Now, uh, Dave Abbey's in the sound booth right now. I just woke him up. Uh, but he's in the sound booth. If Dave Abbey ever comes up to me and says, listen, I'm all ears. He doesn't say that uh, to me very often. And, uh, but if anybody comes up to me and says, listen, it's like, okay, well, this must be really important. When Jesus says, listen, I'm more than all ears. And so he speaks to us, not just the crowd that, that day, but us in this room. He says, listen. And then he tells them a story that they would have been very, very familiar with in their agrarian society. He said, behold, in other words, pull the picture up in your mind. They're, they're there on a crowd. Nobody's in a field sowing seed at the moment in time. He says, behold, use your imagination like we can do tonight. He said, a sower went out to sow. And what, what does a sower sow? He sows seed. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured that seed. And then some of the seed fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, in, it, it withered away. And some seed, further, uh, fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked out that seed, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, and that uh, seed yielded a crop that sprang up increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, listen to what it is that I have just told you. And then, uh, but when he was alone, and he, he uh, be, uh, uh, apparently departs the, the place of, of teaching, he's alone now with the disciples. Uh, those around him, uh, the twelve along with others, they asked him about the parable. What in the world does this parable mean? Uh, it, it, it captured their attention. Now they wanted to know uh, uh, what it meant, uh, 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 what he was communicating by it. And Jesus said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to those who are, out, uh, are outside all things come in parables, so that, and here he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and, be forg uh, and their sins be forgiven uh, them. And so Jesus spoke in parables, as He reveals here, for two main reasons. Uh, the first reason is to reveal truth, to further uh, reveal truth to the disciples. In other words, to people that are interested in uh, spiritual truth, interested in what Jesus has to say, interested in the truth uh, about God. One of the great things about parables uh, is that they grab people's attention. It's the same thing with a story. Uh, I, I, ju I just simply have got to, on these Sunday mornings when I'm teaching through Romans, I have got to work in some uh, kitten illustrations or dog illustrations. I mean, here you've lost uh, two-thirds of the room maybe at some particular point in the majesty of what Paul is bringing out. And then if I were to say, that reminds me of two chimpanzees, I'd have the whole room back. Everybody's attention would be drawn. This is something different. This is something unusual. 
And so, uh, Jesus used the parables because the people would, it would catch their interest. They would begin to try and understand what in the world is he, he's saying here. It was always an image. It was very simple and from uh, everyday life, and they knew he was trying to communicate something uh, 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 through it. And so, the parables grabbed the attention of, of the listener and uh, the person who was honest in their listening, honest in seeking uh, Jesus, they would then search out the meaning of the parable, and then, and then in finding out the meaning of it, they'd be rewarded for their hunger uh, to know it. And then, but as Jesus makes clear here, uh, He used the parable method in order to also hide the truth, but not from the honest seeker, but to hide the truth from those who gave the appearance of being uh, sincere seekers after His teaching. Uh, some people were showing up just for miracles. Some people were just showing up for food at this particular point. You had the religious leaders that were now a part of the audience and listening, and they did not have an honest bone in their body concerning what Jesus was teaching. They were just coming in order to find fault with Him, and they weren't alone in that. And when Jesus spoke in parables, it was in order to take and to hide the truth that He was speaking from those people who had no interest in it, or they were going to use it in some way to try and find a fault with Him. And so, a parable reveals or it conceals based upon the heart of the listener. The person that really interested in knowing God, they'll seek out the meaning of the parable, and they'll gain insight into the revelation that, of the parable. And the person who's not interested in spiritual truth, uh, they'll uh, look at it and, and, uh, and the, the truth will remain uh, concealed uh, to their, uh, their indifference. I think that one of the things that this uh, verse 11 and 12 and verses like it uh, in the Bible and the fact that Jesus uh, speaks in this way, it, it speaks to me of the privilege of being able to hear the Word of God the privilege of being a, having a Bible uh, before me right now, but to have a Bible on my lap or in my hands any time uh, that, that I want to. And I think that very often the world that we live in, and we have to be careful of it, uh, in our own lives as Christians, this idea that, uh, that somehow the assumption that we can be indifferent to God and His Word uh, with no consequences, with impunity on it. And to realize as Jesus speaks here, it is a privilege to know Him. It is a privilege to hear His Word. It is a privilege to understand every single thing that He spoke in the course of His ministry. And then it is a further privilege to be able to obey that. And the revelation that Jesus gives and the revelation that's found in the entirety uh, of, the, uh, of the Bible is so indescribably precious. I mean, it counter-distinct to everything that is in the world. It does, it does what nothing else in the world uh, can do. And when Jesus speaks here, it speaks, uh, He speaks about the importance of never uh, 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 approaching the Word of God with indifference. It is a privilege to search out the Word. It is a privilege to hear the Word. It is the privilege to understand uh, the Word. And to treat it with indifference is an awful thing. 
an awful, awful thing, and, and the word will remain hidden to that uh, kind of person. And Jesus said he, he spoke in the parabolic method as a, in part as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that said the Messiah, when he came, would do so. And so he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses uh, 9 and, and 10. And then in verse 13, he goes on to explain uh, the parable. And he explains it to who? The people that wanted to know what it meant and came to him for the meaning. And he said, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Now, that second question that he asked there, how then will you understand all of the parables, if you don't underline it uh, with a pen in your Bible, at least underline it in your minds, because we'll come back to it, if not tonight, then uh, Lord willing, next Sunday night. Because Jesus is saying here that understanding this parable is the key to understanding all of the rest of the parables. And so he repeats the parable, but he gives the understanding of it uh, now. And he said, the sower sows the Word. So the sower is anyone who casts out, and in those days uh, the farmer would broadcast the seed. And the sower is any person, any Christian, whether it's one-on-one -on -one evangelism, whether it's what Greg Laurie is going to do in the Harvest Crusade, mass evangelism, the teaching of the Word of God as Steve does with the men and Karen with the women and others, or in a home fellowship, or any of us sharing with our loved ones or with our family members or friends. Uh, it is to share the Word of God, and the seed is the Word of God, to share the gospel and the Word of God with uh, another person. And so, the sower, he sows the Word. That's what the seed is. And these are the ones by the wayside where the Word is sown. And, and when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their heart. And he's going to describe now four different principal hearts that people have in their response to the Word of God. And he says the first person or the first kind of heart that responds to the Word of God through all of the ages, even into, uh, even into today, is the hard heart, the hard-hearted person. And uh, I don't, uh, I think, you know, in our kind of agricultural world here in the Central Valley, you know, we've got canals and we drive trucks up on, uh, you know, banks that are above where the almond trees and, and all are, are planted. I remember being in India one time and they, uh, seeing the rice fields as they were being uh, planted there in southern India. And, of, uh, of course, uh, when you have fields that are, uh, you know, you're trying to develop a crop out of that, uh, no one, uh, uh, people's properties abutted one another, but nobody would want to walk across their field to get from one place to another, or you destroy the crop. And so on the boundary of all of these uh, sets of land, there would be this hardened dirt where all of the farmers would walk back and forth and the workers would walk back and forth, and it would become very, very compacted by virtue of that. And so Jesus said some of the seed, when it's cast and it's in, in the sowing process, it landed there, and the birds were very, very happy when, uh, in, the, in a physical sense to come and eat that seed up right away, and in a spiritual sense, when a person's heart is hard uh, to the Word of God, to come into that person's life and to simply snatch the truth of God's Word uh, out, of, uh, out of their heart. And so, uh, it, it refers to, uh, it refers to uh, the, the hard uh, heart. I think that very often, in, uh, in, and I think it's 
you know, as, as this speaks about uh, the, the human heart that's hardened against the Word of God. And there are people like that. I talk to them regularly. You do too if you share your faith. And uh, their heart is hard. But Jesus said, I would that you're hot or cold and not lukewarm. He's more hope for the, uh, the cold than, than, than the lukewarm. And uh, they hear the Word of God, and they're absolutely determined. They are not going to allow uh, that truth to penetrate uh, their heart. Not going to let that truth or the gospel have any kind of make any indent or impression uh, within my life. And, uh, and so their heart and their mind is absolutely close to the gospel. And the devil is very happy to come in and play his part in quickly removing the truth from their lives. And I think that so often a person who rejects Christianity and the Bible is superstitious or it's an old way or, uh, you know, humanity's progressed beyond uh, uh, the moral and spiritual truth that is found in all of that. We're uh, far smarter than all of that now while the whole world is <laughs> in flames around us uh, uh, and uh, people's lives are, are, are collapsing on an individual and on a national and international level. But um, there is this idea that I'm too intelligent for this. You know, the Bible, it's never penetrated my heart. I've never given a place to it. And, uh, uh, and the idea that I'm too brilliant or I'm too intellectual for that. And to be completely uh, deceived uh, to the realization that uh, with me blocking these things in my heart, all that is happening in my life is that the devil is coming from a very real realm and then snatching it quickly out of my heart. It's not because I'm so smart or I'm so brilliant. It's because I'm on the dumb side of a spiritual warfare that I don't believe in and is costing me uh, very, very uh, dearly. And so here you have the first uh, the four soils that the seed goes on, indicative or characteristic of four hearts, and the first is the hard heart. And these likewise are the ones, uh, he goes on with the, the, the second kind of heart or soil. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. And afterwards when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately uh, they stumble. And so here you have the shallow heart. Um, in, you go to Israel today, and certainly uh, throughout time, it is a place of rocks. It is a place of stony ground. Anywhere you want, there's the old joke, is when God sent out uh, Michael and Gabriel to uh, scatter rocks over the entire face of the earth evenly. Uh, that uh, Michael went out and scattered his evenly over the face of the earth, and Gabriel dumped his whole load there in Israel. And uh, you can, it can seem like that. I mean, certainly if you farmed there, you would know, you know, the, the stones just to see it. And, uh, but the interesting thing about uh, earth that is, has a lot of rocks in it, when spring comes, the seed is sown, and because of the rocks, it, it, uh, it, it takes in and absorbs the heat of the sun more quickly than other soil, and that, uh, that warmth then radiates to the seed. The seed germinates more quickly, and it sprouts. It just looks like uh, this is going gangbusters. And it's the same kind of thing that happens very often in a person's life where they come, they, a, a person does hear the gospel, uh, commits their life to the Lord, and, and begins to grow in the things of the Lord, uh, but the commitment that they have to the Lord is shallow. 
And the, the place that the Word of God has in their heart is shallow as well. And so they, they're growing like crazy, and you think, wow, I just led the next Billy Graham to the Lord. I'm going to be famous. And then a few weeks go by, a few months go by, even a year or two go by, and that commitment that they made gets tested by trials. And it gets tested by, now it's going to cost me something to obey God's Word in the relationships and the circumstances of my life. And then when they do that, they get flack for that. And as soon as they get flack for that, they decide this is not worth it. And they walk away from uh, the commitment they had made because the commitment they had made was a shallow one, uh, a man-centered uh, kind of one. I think this is one of the reasons that um, it, it, I don't know what your early Christian life was like, but when I got saved, um, you know, for a while I was in a bubble. It was so great. I was ready to uh, write my autobiography, a, a, a giant of uh, faith. Uh, you know, I mean, it just seemed like everything I did, God kind of blessed it, and, and uh, things were so easy and moving forward. And I'd hear about these Christians having trials, and I'd say, what in the world are you talking about? And all you have to do is just live long enough, and, and it's coming. And, and then we hit that place where after that honeymoon period, sometimes the trials become, come in and we wonder, wow, what is this all about? Does God love me? Does He hate me? What's, what's happening here? I know He has the power to, to, uh, to protect me from this. And, uh, but so often it is where He allows the circumstances to come into our life where we begin to pay a price within our own family and within our sphere of influence to walk with the Lord and, and then it reveals to us the depth of our own commitment. And I think most of us know, I certainly have known it as a pastor, so many people who have gone like gangbusters for a period of weeks or months, and then one day their commitment gets tested, and you never see them again. And that is the, that is the second kind of heart. Uh, that Jesus describes. In any audience, when he was addressing the group 2,000 years ago, in any church you want to talk about anywhere around the world, uh, there are these four hearts that are represented where the Word of God is, is, uh, is going into their hearts. And so, uh, here you have uh, the shallow heart. And then he says, as he comes to the third kind of heart or soil, now these are the ones uh, sown among the thorns, and they are the ones who hear the Word, and then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering into their life then choke the Word, and it becomes unfruitful. And here you have the crowded heart where the Word of God comes in, and here's a person who's sincere. Here's a person who believes the Word of God, believes the gospel believes the truth of, uh, of God's Word, uh, would argue uh, uh, over it in any kind of a debate or, or discussion. But what they allow to have happen in, in their life is, uh, over time, is instead of making the Word of God, obeying God's Word and growing in God's Word the priority of their life and, and, and giving the Word that kind of a place in their life, they just fall into kind of a Christian version of the culture around them, Western culture, 
which is given to, uh, is, you know, this third soil is probably heavily re represented within our culture where everything that God is sowing into our lives, the Word of God, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, materialism, getting ahead in life, um, uh, you know, getting the promotion, and, and all that, it basically saying, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to live for all of the things and live my life exactly like everybody else in the world that doesn't uh, know the Lord. It'll be, I won't swear like they do, and, and I won't cheat and steal like uh, they do, but I'll, I'm, I'll be on the hunt for money and uh, prosperity, and I'll be on the, for honor and prestige everybody, every bit as much as they are. And then pretty soon, uh, the seed in that person's life, it gets crowded out by all of these things, and the Word never comes to fruition uh, in, in their life. I remember when I was uh, many, 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 many years ago now, I tried to figure out in all of this, you know, who's really a Christian and who isn't a Christian. Uh, in all of this. I mean, obviously, heart number one is not a Christian. Number two, uh, that's pretty iffy, iffy territory. Number three, you know, you'd look and say, all right, is it a carnal Christian? Is it what or what? Well, I, I don't know why I brought it up tonight because it's, uh, I wouldn't want to speak at all in, into, uh, you know, the eternal condition of any of, of the first three and, and leave, uh, you know, heart number three as an option for any of us when we want to be into heart number four, but uh, all of it is, is, is so, uh, these other uh, representations of the heart are so uh, well represented all around us. And then he says concerning the fourth soil or the fourth heart, but these are the ones, uh, 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 these are the ones sown on good ground, and those who uh, hear the Word and accept it, they bear fruit, some thirty, some sixty, and a hundredfold. That is, uh, that is the normal Christian life in, in the mind of Jesus. For where the Word of God is being given a proper place in the heart uh, of an individual person is that it will bring forth tremendous fruit for the kingdom of God. There will be growth. There will be life. There will be uh, vibrancy. And, and nothing else in the parable is commendable uh, apart from this. And the reason is, is because everyone can have a, a good heart toward the Word of God. Everyone can have a heart that is uh, eager to receive the Word of God, a heart that is prepared uh, to receive uh, the, uh, the Word of God. And so, the evidence of a heart of like this is someone who hears the gospel and receives it in, into their life, and then they begin to read the Word of God, not merely to learn the Word of God, but they read the Word of God in order to then grow in the Word of God and to obey uh, the Word of God, and where you can look at someone and say, you know, that person is uh, uh, thoroughly saved. And so Jesus here, He just gives us the, the, the four basic kinds of hearts that are represented in any crowd, and not just any crowd. I mean, these people weren't at the temple. These people weren't at uh, uh, the temple of Dagon. Uh, these people weren't worshiping Baal. He's talking about the hearts that are represented in any crowd uh, that appears to be associated with Him and desiring Him. And a marvel, really, to think about it. And any crowd gathered 2,000 years ago to him, any crowd gathered to hear his word today. There's always the hard heart, there's always the shallow heart, the crowded heart, and there's always the good heart. And um, 
I think about, it's interesting, you, well, I'm not going to go there. So how about that for the new self-disciplined me? So it was the trip to the Holy Land. That, no, I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, so, but, but one of the things that this teaches us is that how a person responds to the Word of God is never a reflection on the Word itself. Never. Never. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, Jesus said, but his word, God's Word will never, ever pass away. How we respond to the Word of God is always a reflection of the condition of our own heart. And that's one of the things that Jesus is bringing uh, out here. And three things that keeps God word, God's Word from saving people and then transforming a life is a hardness of heart, shallowness of commitment, and a life that is too occupied with worldly things. And I think that this particular parable is such a great encouragement to anyone who ministers the Word. Again, in sharing the gospel one-on-one, -on -one, if you go out with Lanny and the team, or you do it individually, privately in your own life, or teaching the Word of God in any kind of, uh, of setting, and uh, to the, the tendency can be to be discouraged by uh, these other responses to the Word of God, and they really, really can be uh, discouraging. But to remember and to remind ourselves continually, there is nothing wrong with the gospel that I am sharing, though uh, only one in four at the most is willing it to take it seriously. There is nothing wrong with the Word of God that I am teaching uh, to people, even though maybe only one in four and even the best of churches will take it seriously and give it a place in their life in the way that God uh, desires uh, to be, uh, be the case. Every single person in the world has a right to hear the gospel and has a right to hear the Word of God. And then what a person does with that, that's entirely up to them. But our responsibility, as he gets to it in the next couple of parables, which we'll look at next time, our responsibility is to deliver it, but then not to be surprised that it is a small majority or a small minority that then responds to the Word of God in a way that the Word of God is worthy of being responded uh, to. So don't try and uh, figure out, okay, here I'm talking with this person, uh, what, uh, which particular soil do I have in front of me? Sometimes it becomes very, very obvious, but just to sow uh, the seed into their life and, and allow it to do it, its work. One of the things that I think is very, very important, you can pray for me. I'm, I'm a man of flesh and blood, and uh, I deal with uh, trials that everybody else faces and that all other pastors uh, face. And in the current ministry environment of uh, the United States of America and in California, there is enormous pressure upon pastors and teachers of the Word of God to teach the Word of God in a way that accommodates the first three of those hearts and the first three of those soils and, uh, and to treat it as normative and, and, uh, and, and, and as something that's acceptable in a, in a Christian's life, an acceptable attitude toward uh, the Word of God, and then encourage people that they're okay despite that, or even Christians when they aren't. And there's tremendous pressure in, 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 in that regard, uh, this, this pressure to accommodate. And yet Jesus speaks of just one thing, one kind of heart 
And I, and I speak to myself supremely here tonight, where we leave this place, we pick up our children. If we're going to pick up children in the mi children's ministry, go to our car and to really ask God and His Holy Spirit, is my heart represented by the good soil? Does your word still have that place within my life? Is there a hunger for it, a thirsting for it? Do I long to go deeper in it? Is it still bearing fruit within my life? There's this great tendency, and it's an awful deception for us as Christians, and to no one more than me, that after we've walked with the Lord for a while, that we come to conclusions about our own spirituality on the basis of how much we know as opposed to how much we know and we actually practice of the Word of God. And with the, the, the fourth soil or the fourth heart here is not only a hunger and a longing for the Word of God, uh, but an obedience to that Word of God, and then to watch that Word grow and, and, uh, and yield a great spiritual uh, crop and fruit for the kingdom of God. We'll stop there tonight, and let's stand together. We'll invite the worship team out, and uh, I will close us in prayer. If you sit here this evening and now stand here this evening, and you're not yet a, a Christian, I mean, it's an awesome thing what we have uh, uh, read tonight and what we studied tonight, however familiar it might be, probably not familiar to you. I treasure every single thing in the Gospels. I'm so glad to be uh, going through it. I just hate that I'm just rushing through it the way that I am uh, currently. I'm just kidding. Uh, but if you are not a Christian yet, uh, to, to see how Jesus speaks about you and to you and a warning concerning uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and, and a call to, to respond to the gospel and come into the, a full, rich, vibrant Christian life. Maybe here, you're here tonight and you, you know you're playing games. And I'm not, I'm, you know, God's not giving me names right now or something like that. I wouldn't make anyone feel comfortable in that way. But you say, I, I know for a fact, I am completely loaded up into soil number three. I am, I'm doing nothing for God, nothing for God. My life is making not one dent for the kingdom of God, not one dent, not in my family, not anywhere. But I'm making a dent in the world. Every single thing that I have, every resource, all of my energy, all my fight, all of my attention, all of my strength is going into that. And, uh, and to, to look at that and to say, no, I don't want to leave this place anywhere but in, in that, that good heart and that good soil. But the Lord loves you if you're not a Christian yet tonight. And becoming a Christian can happen in an instant. And begin the relationship with God that you've been created for. And we'll be up in front after the service, and we'd love to pray with you to do that or to pray with anyone tonight for any need that you have in your life. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you tonight for, I mean, how can we put it into words, the, the inexpressible privilege of allowing these truths that came from the very lips of our Savior to once again impact our lives or to impact them for the very first time, to allow them to take a deeper place within our hearts and our minds and understanding. We thank you for the privilege, Lord, and the witness of your Holy Spirit to all of this, and we pray that as we leave tonight that it will not be as we go through those double doors in the back, the end of the ministry of your Holy Spirit to us tonight, but that that conversation with you through your word would continue on into the evening as needed in, 
in terms of exhortation, edification, or comfort in any of our lives. Thank you for the witness of your Holy Spirit to your Word, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Brent, would you close?